inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. Outlook. Radio Western. Good morning. You're listening to Outlook on 94.9 CHRW Radio Western. It's a Monday morning. Brian is here. Here and getting our guest. Guests should be live now, so I think we should be good to go. But yeah, it's a windy day out there today. Um, I'm pretty skinny, so I nearly fell over walking (laughs) outside, but uh, we made it. We put some weights on you just to help (laughs) a little bit. Yeah, right. But yeah, so last week, as our listeners might remember, we had a guest all scheduled, and that was right when the news of the weather in BC is sort of reaching us, and our guest um, was there somewhere and couldn't get on the air. So, um, good thing to have everything working this morning for our guest, who's also in British Columbia, uh, Heather Hutchison. So, she is a musician, a singer, and a songwriter, and she's also just recently written a book called... Holding On by Letting Go, a memoir by Heather Hutchison. So um, thank you, Heather, for coming on Outlook. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great. Uh, what I want to mention off, off top is that we're, we're so used to, we call it a carry connection, if, if you find the guest carry, or a Brian booking when I book a guest. Yeah. But um, in this case, Heather, you reached out to us. Yes. Um, so I was kind of curious to start off, how did you come across Outlook in the first place? I think it was actually in one of the Facebook groups. I think it was like Blind People of BC, something like that. Hmm. Oh, sweet. Yeah, there is a Blind People of BC group and there's a Blind People of There's an everybody group on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, there's <laughs> also everybody. a group, of course. But, but it just, it's so refreshing for a change. Like, of course, our show, we love, you know, searching people and finding as many guests, interesting guests as we can, but it's just so refreshing when someone else reaches out to us because it hasn't, doesn't really happen, hasn't happened too often yet. So I just find that very exciting. Well, it's great because her book that we're going to talk about today and music, these are all things we talk about on Outlook. We talk about disability and blindness if anyone's newly listening. And uh, yet uh, we don't talk enough about mental health and mental illness. And we all here today agree that we need to talk more about that also. Yeah, so I think I'll just let the listeners know off the top that um, a bit of a content warning. Some of the topics on today's show, we're going to be talking a little bit about mental health and, and, and suicide and stuff like that. So just, just to, uh, to let any listeners know that uh, some, of the, some of the topics on today's show could be a little bit sensitive or triggering to some degree. So just good to put that out there. But Heather, you're, you're talk, you know, coming here to us today from Vancouver Island, right? Yes. So what part are you on? As we were just saying, just saying before we went on air, it's it's not just a small place, that island. No, no, it's not. So I'm, right now I'm in Nanaimo, which is about an hour and 45 minutes from Victoria. Okay. Yes, I've definitely heard of Nanaimo and when I was out, out in BC, but I've only, I've been there, I guess, three, three times over the past three years, pretty much. But um, yeah, I've never been to Nanaimo. So. Well, that's how mixed I get, up I get. It's like 
I thought that was only on the mainland. I thought and I was on the mainland. Oh, really? Yeah, no, it's, well, it's like we were talking about before. Like, I have no idea Toronto is such a mystery to me. Right. Yeah, if you don't live in the province, it's just hard to sort of imagine the full landscape exactly. and what's where and, and that kind of thing. And yeah, I was always confused too, because you say Vancouver Island. So I was like, oh, Vancouver, but no, Vancouver, the city is on, is on the mainland. Yeah, um, yeah, I just believe. to confuse people. <laughs> yeah, just yes, it is. <laughs> Yes, well, um, let's talk about um, you a bit before we get into the book because give people some context for sure. Um, I guess to get you to tell our listeners a bit more about you, uh, I'm going to use the example that you have in your book, in the early part of your book, uh, an incident at a playground with, a, with another child when you were like, what, five. Uh, you yes. want to tell us what happened to the, um, that day and it'll maybe shed some light on a bit more about you and... Yeah, for sure. So I was playing on the playground with a kid who was a couple years older than me. And at the time, I was, yeah, five. And I didn't really realize that I was different because I think you're a kid, you grow up in this kind of little bubble with your family and your close friends. And and you don't really interact, I guess, that much with the outside world. And you're kind of self-absorbed. <laughs> so I didn't really realize I guess I knew I was blind, but it was just like this thing that was neither positive nor negative. It was just like, oh, I'm born with brown hair and blue eyes. So that day I'm playing on the playground with this kid and we play for a couple hours and then he asks me why I never look at anything. And I tell him super matter-of-factly, well, I'm blind, like I have brown hair and blue eyes. no big deal and his reaction was so sudden he turned around we were standing at the top of the slide and he shoved me backwards off the slide and he flew down the slide got on his bike he yelled something over his shoulder about me being a blind bozo and he sped off he didn't want to play anymore and I was just kind of lying there on the playground and that's really kind of when it struck me that wow, I am different. People see me as different and this is forever. It's not something that I can change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and con- control or the lack of control comes up a lot um, from reading your book, I know. So, mm-hmm. of course, that's the same kind of thing that um, people with disabilities like blindness contend with a lot of times. Yeah, and it just it's it's interesting how you, how you talk about that and how when we are very young and, and kids and, and stuff like that, it's at a very early age, people are seem to be very accepting because people aren't taught by others kind of what to, what to believe, where in, in reality, unfortunately, a lot of us are so influenced by other people's beliefs and things that they say that we, we develop these, these stereotypes through experience and through the people that we're around. So there's that innocent age, but then your book really exemplifies how, as, as you get a bit older, and for many people, I think, to some degree at least, kind of getting older and then hitting the puberty years and I mean this goes back all the way to when you're five obviously but things kind of kind of come and go but then I think the teen years can start to be really difficult um, Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases well it's bullying which is a a theme we don't talk about enough on the show we've talked about it before in our context as blind children in a uh, sighted school um, that we don't have tons of memories so it's the show's outlook and that's why we love to speak with guests like Heather because um it just shows like, you know, one blind experience can be so different and one life is so different from any other. And uh, your experiences with bullying starting from that age, which, I mean, I don't know what you call that first one. I mean, it, it was, it's interesting to think of like 
by his age, what had that child been told or what had they learned about the difference of blindness that made them react like that? Because, you know, they're just children, of course, but it didn't, it wasn't so, you know, it got bigger and bigger the older you got. Is that yeah. correct? Kind yeah. Of? I mean, he obviously learned it from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's always interesting to read about other people's experience because, you know, I think you mentioned this in the book and it's something we, we deal with a lo- quite a bit as blind people is sort of tr- looked at as representing all blind people or, yes. you know, one, one of us is like, oh, you must know everything about it, all blind people when really that's just a characteristic and we're many other things and, and uh, we're very different <laughs> as blind yeah, people. Yeah. Or you must know Bob. Well, no, I don't. <laughs> no, you have to. <laughs> no, really, I don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but of course, like you said, you speak of it in school. Kids would do things... Um, when you were holding your cane, mm-hmm. like it got, I mean, it got bad in certain spots. Yeah, it got, sounds like it got like. pretty violent. Was, um, it, was it like that? Like, did it feel like that? Did it, Or did you go years with feeling pretty good in school? I think I went years feeling pretty good. I think a lot of the stuff in elementary school is stuff that you can just kind of brush off with a little bit of humor, you know, the whole <laughs> how many fingers am I holding up and guess who I am sort of thing. And then when I got into junior high, as you said, with puberty and things like that, kids get a lot meaner, I guess. Yeah, yeah. it's just, again, it's everyone has a different experience. And it's just, when I read about these things, like, it's not that I never was bullied in, in school, but it just, for me, it didn't seem to happen that much, and sometimes I'm kind of wondering, like, what what's going on? Like, it's just everyone has a different situation, and, you know, school systems are different everywhere, and and support, and there's just so many factors, I think, that, that go into it, and when I hear about this stuff, I'm just like, geez, like, what? I don't know, Carrie, if you have any kind of thoughts on that, and uh, it's just, I don't, I didn't really have any of those experiences going to school. I mean, of course, being blind, it was difficult at times, but... yeah. I just never had that violent bullying or anything like that. So it's just it's just so frustrating out there when, you know, this is this was in the I guess in in the 90s and into the 2000s probably when you started high school yeah. that this was still still going on today and I think over time now with with the more discussion that's going on out there things are slowly getting better but it's it's so gradual that it's just uh um it's hard to notice. Um but I also find that kind of ties in sometimes people are like Oh, bullying is... Uh, people are just complaining too much these days. Like, bullying is part of growing up. Yeah, like kids aren't tough enough or something. Or, yeah, like, mm-hmm. we, we have to stop everything before it can go to a conflict. Um. And while I, while I don't disagree that, you know, having some sort of difficulties growing up or being bullied a little bit might sort of help your character in some way, I just, mm-hmm. I don't see it as a benefit. It's not like, oh, you need to have that to, ha- to, to learn in life or something. It's uh, just a, something I think about. But then you started fighting back. I don't know, you want to tell us sort of how you got Yeah, there. I loved a few, couple of your got comebacks there. there. <laughs> um, well, there were the, the group of guys, I guess, is maybe the one you're talking about. There's the finger, when you put a finger up and you oh, show yeah. the middle finger. I yeah. thought, thought that was funny. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, the one that you, you, actually, you fought back, um, I think that was the group of guys, maybe? Yeah, yeah, so they would always, there was kind of this group, this core group, and they thought it was really funny to come up behind me and grab me and kind of hold me against them in a bear hug and the objective I guess of the game was they wouldn't let me go until I correctly identified who they were Mm. so one day I just kind of had enough of it and the poor unfortunate guy who happened to do it that day I told him to let me go and he wouldn't 
and <laughs> so I kind of I pushed into him with my full weight and as he went backwards I brought up the metal like the the marshmallow tip I guess end of my cane and hit him in the crotch and <laughs> he went down and he was kind of rolling around on the on the hallway floor and I was just like I told you a million times and you didn't listen and I went to class and that was kind of the end of it yeah that'll that'll do it I guess and it's, <laughs> it's one of those things that I, I imagine you're not you're definitely from reading the book and just getting to know you a little bit through that you're not at all a violent person and you put up with that no. stuff for so long that you know eventually anyone's gonna snap at some point you know it's hopefully anyway at some point because people I don't know it's it's a tough thing because yeah, it's yeah yeah it was so uncharacteristic like I still look back on it and I'm like I did that wow <laughs> yeah and then I think you also mentioned in your book maybe before that situation or anytime that you would sort of go to authorities to talk about this stuff they would just say you know certain things like boys are boys will be boys and mm -hmm. they like you they're just they don't know how to show it and this kind of silly stuff which still today we talk we're talking on this show um the last few months a lot about all these difficult topics like you know sexual misconduct and all this kind of stuff that goes on and again it just it still isn't handled as as efficiently as it should be by authorities and higher ups and, and all this kind of stuff and uh it just really made me think about about that yeah no it's not for sure i think like you said I hope it's getting better, but I think we still have a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why we're doing Outlook. Um, how about, so family, what was your family life like when you were younger? Uh, so for our listeners, just to know, I don't know if we mentioned specifically, although you may have when you when you said the title of the book, that, that Heather, what you were born blind, um, just yes. like Carrie and I here. Mm -hmm. and Gen Genetic. Yeah, you said it was definitely a genetic reason for that, um, which is yes. also the case for us. From what I can tell based on the book, it sounds like the level of sight that you do have is sort of similar to mine. This is a topic we talk about in the show a lot, about talking about how much someone can see is a really weird conversation because it's... It hard is. to fully explain and while you said you have light perception and that's what I have as well it sounded almost like you can maybe see a little bit more than me but it's a really weird thing to, to think about I find it is weird it's like this weird continuum and I think people like a lot of sighted people don't realize they think it's all or nothing and it's this crazy continuum that starts at nothing and goes to fully sighted and it's but even like we might have the same amount of sight but in different ways almost like you yeah. might see better in bright light I see better in lower light so it's just it is kind of weird yeah because you were talking a little bit about shapes I think and a little bit about a colors or something I'm trying to remember but just a couple of things I was like oh I don't think I see that much but yeah <laughs> just the color red well the doctors say I can't actually see red that it's just like a specific tone of gray but I swear I can see red so who knows mm-hmm and it's just, it's like, like, that's not good enough for some people that they think that that must mean you're just making something up or, I don't know, like, color is what, what color is to you. Yeah. So. Yeah, so then just a little bit more about your childhood. So you, you were born blind and then we talked about that experience that happened at the playground when you were five. But maybe just to tell the listeners a little bit more about your, your childhood and background and, and family and kind of how your childhood was up until the teen years and, and, and stuff. It was super normal up until a certain point. My parents weren't really the helicopter parent type. I I know a lot of kids with disabilities struggle with having kind of these overbearing parents that don't 
really want to let them do anything that kind of keep them in this bubble sometimes and that wasn't my experience fortunately actually I've talked to my mom about it and she's like even if we'd wanted to <laughs> we you wouldn't have let us like there was just no holding me back I guess so I would just do everything that my brother and my cousins were doing I couldn't understand if anybody said I couldn't I'd just get frustrated and do it anyways so so yeah it was really normal in that aspect um there was illness in my family early on early on my dad had cancer and then he left and there were some struggles with mental health in my family so I did have that kind of modeling growing up which for sure influenced how things turned out for me as well well I was thinking about your dad's cancer and um, sort of some of the medical traumas from my past I don't know what you if you call it a trauma uh, I, you know I'm interested in intergenerational uh, trauma and how things are transferred even from our childhoods where we're dealing with big things like illness if um, what kind of mark that leaves on us what, what about mm-hmm. you for you what do you think that was like for you I think it does for sure because there's Like, I don't remember a lot about it, but I do remember the confusion of really what's good because I was three when he was diagnosed. So I really didn't understand what was going on. I remember being in the hospital with him after his surgeries and just being really kind of lost and like unsure, I guess, of how things were going to turn out and my place in this whole situation and when and if he would be back home things like that so I just remember it being a, a really confusing time and really unsettling mm-hmm. yeah and that's another thing that it's I'm always interested to learn about because you know I'm, I'm definitely fascinated by psychology and mental health and these things I've, I've considered studying at some point um, in the future as well but I just um you know, you, you talked about how your your parents weren't overprotective, which is the same case for, for for Carrie and I here. Our parents were very... Well, we lived out in the country, and we, yeah, we had older siblings, uh, just like you have brothers, and we just, we ran around with our cousins and our, our siblings, and we yeah. were outside, and my, our parents, my mother wanted us to be out in bare feet uh, in the summer, just, you know. Whereas, yeah, I know, you know, we have a, a friend, and there's, there's a lot of, blind, there are still a lot of blind people out there that are very sheltered and and you know a lot of that is it's it's unfortunate and of course the oftentimes parents just aren't equipped to support or know what to do and it's you know it's it's a tough situation but it's something we really are trying to change especially with this show just to bring more awareness to to make people realize that by getting out and doing things that's how you learn and make mistakes and and really get out in the world and and then when you get to a certain age you know you you don't want to be stuck in your parents basement so no, no, exactly. And it just makes things more challenging when you get older if your parents have protected you. Yeah. But the the, the difference for, uh, and again, it's, it's just sort of more to, to have sort, sort of a, a basis is, you know, for us growing up, we didn't, we didn't experience divorce from our parent, with our parents, um, or any of them getting, well, I mean, they've had a couple things, but really sick. So there's just so many factors in childhood that really... Well, I, I was going to say, I do remember our father had a, had a subdural hematoma when right. I, we were pretty young. But yeah, you were three for sure, Heather. That is super young. But you feel that in your in a family. You feel those sort yeah. of things. And um, yeah, your parents, like you say, uh, divorced. So I don't know. I think you say in your book somewhere, uh, sort of a perfect storm of, of things that have happened to you in your life. Um, sexual violence, 
uh, in your teen years, you know, and then you, so you struggled in school amongst all of these sort of upheavals. And mm-hmm. I, I think the one part that got me from your book was that you said you overheard a conversation from a teacher once about the kind of care that you, the kind of things you needed to be successful in the class. Um, what was that like to hear, overhear something like that? Yeah, so it was a math teacher that was talking to a colleague and there was kind of a, a little bit of an inquiry going on at the time because I wasn't getting the um, educational supports that I needed. I was missing a lot of my class handouts and things like that in Braille. It was a struggle to get textbooks, things like that. Um, I didn't have a calculator for math until a couple weeks before I wrote my uh, grade 12 government exams, which was like an interesting time to get a calculator because I didn't, you know, like those graphing calculators, like those things are complicated. And here I am like two weeks before my finals and they're like, okay, you have to use this now. So yeah, there, there was this conversation between a math teacher and her colleague and she's like, well, she's just not good at math. Some kids aren't. And it was kind of like, well, did I ever really have a chance to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a big thing we we talk about on this show is supports through the school system. And Carrie and I were, were both integrated and uh, and so are you. Um, so it's, it's so hit and miss, it seems. Like some schools, like I think overall, I was very lucky to have a very supportive school system throughout the entire time, even through high school. Actually, one of the the uh, teachers of blind students I had during elementary school was able to follow me to high school, which is quite rare, I think, to, oh, wow. to keep the same teacher at that point. So just having that make, makes things so much easier, I find. And it's just, it's unbelievable that, you know, we all deserve the same education and all this kind of stuff. But the fact that it all comes down a lot of times to money and and support and, and the fact that they're also just, I don't know, I'm sure there's a, a lack of Braille teachers out there and all these kind of things that, that add up. So... Um, it's unfortunate, but it, it sounds like your elementary school experience was a little bit more accessible and they were able to get things for you. But then in, in high school, it got a little more challenging. Yeah, yeah. Elementary school and junior high were pretty good. And then I moved to this high school. And I think a big thing, too, is the administration at the schools. Yeah. Yeah. And you end up feeling like you're you're not wanted. You're not you don't deserve the same education as anyone else. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because I remember going to meetings in grade nine, so here, I don't know what, every every province is, like, so different, it's but like I IEP? actually went to school in Alberta, so grade oh, 10 yeah. was high school, and I remember going to these meetings at my new high school in grade nine before I transferred, and them just being like, well, there's no money, like, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't, like, all I heard was, we can't. And I think we had that happen before we were really conscious of it. It was more our mother and father having to hear those things in my early years. So yeah. um, obviously having two siblings who are blind in a family, the dynamic's going to be different again than it's in your case. Um, but yeah, what a thing to overhear and to feel about yourself when you're just trying to see what you're good at. Yeah. And when it comes down to someone's you know, future in life and, and education to, to just say, oh, we just can't because of money when it's just... It should be equal for everyone, and it's it's just it's disgusting that that stuff happens and still happens today. I imagine, um, yeah. and you know, there's been a lot of talk about phasing out Braille because that's that's another thing I just strongly disagree with. I really hope they continue that. Um, yeah, that's crazy to me. Yeah, it yeah, sounds like that to us too. 
Makes no sense. But again, it's not about that. It's about what you overheard. It's about, well, this is a lot of extra work and Braille is this, uh, you know, super foreign thing that, you know, we have to be on another planet to be able to start to learn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. And the lack of Braillists. Yeah. So yeah. it's just, again, all a perfect storm of things. That, but you yeah. did, you, you did have some, some pretty good Braille instruction growing up then? Because you do, you do read Braille, I believe. Yeah, I do. It was actually funny. So there was really nobody to teach me Braille when I was learning. So I learned, I guess I, I went to kind of this junior kindergarten sort of thing when I was four. And my EA at the time was actually taking the Braille course basically like at the same time as I was. So she'd be like a lesson or two ahead of me and then she would be teaching me. Nice. Oh, wow. That's a fun way to learn. That's cool, though. Yeah, at least that you had, at least you had someone that was also really learning it, and and obviously it's new to her too. So maybe or her or them um, that that could be a bit of a challenge. But in another way, at least it's nice that someone's doing it with you, and and you're yeah. So yeah, yeah. No, she was really great, and she was really enthusiastic about learning and things like that, and about teaching. So it was really positive. I think it would have been more of a struggle if I were older, but at the time you just you kind of learn things like a sponge, right? When you're four or five years old. So it's not really that difficult, even if the person isn't super proficient who's teaching you. Right. And then what about orientation and mobility growing up? Did you have a lot of teachers to help to help with your mobility skills or how did that go? Yeah, my O&M actually was, was really good. I had a couple really good O&M instructors. So that was really positive. I was able to be really independent go to the mall, take the buses, all that kind of stuff with, with my friends. Um, so that was definitely a plus. I got a guide dog when I was 17. So O&M was for sure a, a big thing. And it, it was <laughs> a lot better than my schooling, I would say. So. Hmm. Well, that's good to hear that you got some good mobility lessons, at least growing up, because not everyone even gets that, unfortunately. No, so. no. And there's so much we to cover with you. Like we could talk about the guide dog thing, your guide dog, Bibby. Because um, I, reading your your story, the account of when you lost her, jumping ahead to the end, sadly, I could just really relate with my memory of when my guide dog was sick at the end. So, um, yeah, you were going all over the place. So in university with your guide dog, and yeah. Uh, so. yeah so Carrie, Carrie and I have both each had one dog. Okay. Um, and you've only had one as well, right? Yeah. Um, and just just out of curiosity, because neither Carrie or I have got gone to get a second dog, is that something you you think you'll ever get another dog? Do you have any thought on that? I don't really think so. It's actually funny. I haven't met that many people who have only had one dog. So for no. me, it was me neither, just this no. You're right. like visibility thing in public. It, I just got so tired of everybody coming up and being like, "Oh, what's the dog's name? How old is she? What breed? All that kind of stuff." I just really wanted to be able to go about my because I have social anxiety so it would just make me more anxious to know that all these upcoming conversations were going to happen with these random people who would want to know my dog's name for no particular reason like I don't really know how that was you know making their day better but <laughs> mm, yeah people love dogs but of course yeah you're le- you're led to believe well you know they're complimenting your dog it's a nice thing but it's yeah. we've talked about this all the time it's if you have somewhere to be or if you just want to be in your own thoughts and you don't want to be stopped every five minutes um for that kind of thing so yeah yeah i always remember studying on the bus and people would sit down and like start <sighs> talking about my dog and i'm like i have an exam in an hour can you <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things I think where 
you know, some certain days when I'm in a, depending on my mood and if I have time, I'm, I'm okay to t- talk to people a bit more if they ask questions and stuff, but not all the time. And, and it, you know, it's a lot, oftentimes these are pretty personal questions that you wouldn't just ask. Nobody else would ask a, a stranger that they just met. So it's sort of that balance and it, it can get tricky for sure. Yes. Well, yeah, no, uh, you've, you talked about that in your book too, right? Like, I'm sure you've got the question. Are you getting another one? And, um, just interesting I wanted to really ask that because Carrie and I are kind of both the same Carrie I don't know what have you been feeling lately but I'm not against getting another dog but I don't know if I ever will um just me with my music and and also just my independence there's some it's it's a whole other thing to take care of obviously and it can be worth it in yeah you can't just put it in a corner when you're done with it so exactly and I think what you speak about the uh the being noticed I think I had my guide dog in high school um, oh, which, okay. it, it, wow, it, yeah, it was a good experience for me actually during high school. But when I, I did get to a certain point when I, you know, I think I really hit puberty and was sort of in that state where I didn't want to be noticed. I wanted to blend in, and I started feeling sort of anxious in public, talking to my dog or giving it the commands and all this yes. kind of stuff. Yeah, so me too. When mm-hmm. I when I graduated high school, I moved to Toronto with friends, and I had my dog there briefly, but it just wasn't <laughs> it wasn't working. So I ended up sending her home with my mom um and again i think that was i look back on it i'm kind of like i feel bad like i wish i was maybe there a bit more for the dog or i was more into it by the end at the end but you can't change where where you're at in a certain point in life and no i think it's tough when you're young too even for me in university and i'm guessing for you in high school you just you want to go out with your friends you don't always want to be thinking about the dog and what the dog needs and whether you should leave the dog home or take it with you or you know there's so many considerations that go into it and i think when your life's really in flux like that when you're young it's it's tough Mm -hmm. yeah it's not for everybody and it's not for every time in life and um, just because everyone else gets multiple dogs doesn't mean Gus three will <laughs> so but I think it's also interesting about in the in the book when you when you do when you had the dog for so long and then you go back to the cane that though you're not dead set on having another dog it's the cane poses its own challenges um, and a lot of those you know you talked about just sort of being you know grabbed more and and these types of mm-hmm. things that all all of us as bl- of bl- as blind people have experienced at some point or another in, li- in our lives um and it's just when you have a dog that's creates its own sort of situations when you're out and about but when you have a cane it, it creates different situations yeah yeah it really does yeah like what kind of incidents did you ever experience with with in that way where they people will just grab you and just I'm sure a reminder of your bullying in high school and other things from your past and and none of us would accept that as women if we were cited and we were grabbed without our consent yeah exactly but there's almost this attitude among some people that we should be grateful for the help and you know you, you have to be nice you have to be polite because it reflects on other people with disabilities and on and on but it's, it's not okay. It's not okay that anybody gets grabbed from behind, that anybody gets touched without their permission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing that we, we all deal with as, as blind people from time to time. And um, yeah, there's just like, there's no, almost like no boundaries. It's not the same, but it's also just people aren't, aren't used to it and they're uncomfortable and it's... Uh, yeah, but they're not like that's the thing. We want to, we need to learn to, to trust the world. Like it's okay. We most people are decent, good people, right? But you can't always trust a stranger when they say, "Okay, it's co- it's fine for you to cross the street." That's no way for us to to go about our days. No, but that's what you had sort of happen to you. And what do you do? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because the time, well, I mean, it, it's happened to me a lot of times, which I'm sure it has with most blind people. But that one time when the, the uh, young guy, I guess he was probably 20, he was with his friends and a bus was going through the intersection and he was like okay you can cross now and then they kind of burst out laughing and i i guess luckily i didn't have enough faith in humanity and i had good enough o and m skills that mm -hmm. i didn't just cross without paying attention but you know that could have been really dangerous had it been somebody else mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i mean it's it's, it's, it's so unfortunate because yeah a lot of people blind people do have other often do have other disabilities or other other conditions and you know often can be quite vulnerable and and these things can happen and that's why it is you know I've, I'm, always, I'm the same way like I'll I'll be beside someone who's about to cross and they'll be like it's safe to go and I'll still be listening I won't just go because they say so uh, if I hear them going and I also hear the traffic then I know it's safe and I'll and I'll go but um, yeah it, yeah it drives people crazy because that extra like second that you know they see the light change and then we have to wait for a second for the traffic to go and it drives right. them crazy because they don't understand it's like come 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 go. across now go go go, go. grab, <laughs> grab your arm and let's go yeah i was like yeah. oh who are you um but for our listeners today here on outlook we are speaking with heather hutchison from vancouver island she recently released a book called holding on by letting go which is a memoir of her experiences growing up and dealing with mental health and her experiences in a psych ward during the pandemic. She's also a singer-songwriter, piano player, and just uh, really great to have Heather on Outlook today. So we are going to take a quick break now for some promos, and we'll be right back after that with more Outlook. Welcome back. You are listening to Outlook here today on Radio Western. Yeah, first one back in studio with an interview, so it's exciting that... Yeah, this is the first live interview we've done, because we did a ton of pre-recorded interviews during the pandemic, but we haven't done one live in the studio, I think, since February of 2020 when we had uh, Ben Fulton on over the, over the phone, so it's been, it's been a long time, so it's really great to have someone on for a, for a live interview here today on Outlook. Yes, we're speaking with Heather Hutchison, so you can find her, her writing and her music now at heather-hutchison.com. So thanks uh, again, Heather, for being on Outlook to talk about your book, Holding On by Letting Go. Thank you. Yeah, so let's move on now, I guess, then into... Music. I think we have to touch on music before we get, before to, we get to, the, to, the, to your experience during COVID and everything, because I know music is sort of one of the things that not at every moment you were obviously able to um, access it in your life, but it had it's, it was what got you going out of high school and you started feeling acceptance in the music world. Maybe tell everybody about that. Yeah, I was 15 when I entered a talent competition and I'd been writing songs for a while. Well, I don't know when I wasn't writing songs because I remember being like a little kid and I would carry around this you know those like four track cassette players that yeah. I don't know they might have even been from like the CNI yeah we used to have those the, with our yeah. talking books and stuff and they'd play tapes like backwards yeah and, and they're so heavy yeah 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 so I would carry one of those around all the time and and dictate all these songs and stories so it was like always the thing for me and then when I started to get into my teen years and I started feeling more of that isolation I would sit down at the piano and really write out my thoughts and and sing and it was really cathartic for me and it really helped me understand what was going on 
in my own life. So I eventually went into this talent competition and one of the judges for the finals um, came up to me afterwards backstage and was like, I'm, you know, I'm a producer and um, I really love what you did and I'd be really interested in talking about doing a recording. And I was super flattered and all that, but I didn't really think it would ever actually happen. And then what do you know, three weeks later, we're in the recording studio, which was so crazy because it was like going from the high school band room into this professional setting this professional music setting so it was really crazy and um the the musicians the session players the engineers the producers everybody just treated me like an equal like a girl who just loved music instead of the blind girl who loved music I was just me and they just I don't know what it is about music but I've always found this throughout my life since then that musicians just get it I don't know if you found that as well well, it was just made me think a lot about Brian's experiences in with friends and finding his own place that you just seem to f- come come together with a, a bunch of other really cool people often as a musician in, and it is able to give you something that you are looking for. I don't know, Brian, if you think that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm also a, a musician, um, a guitarist. I did play a little bit of piano as a, as a kid, had a few lessons and stuff, but guitar is definitely my interest, instrument. And for me, it definitely, like, I don't know... I don't know how it was for you with your friends. It sounds like you've worked with a lot of sort of session musicians and stuff like that. Um, but in my case, it was it was definitely in, in a lot of the situations how I met a good majority of my friends, and I still have a lot of friends from childhood. Um, and a lot of that was based on music. And in high school, you know, I formed a band with my two best friends that I'd known since grade three. And I do notice, like, even now through online and a lot a lot of the music I listen to, the communities that I've been able to find online with people who are into similar music, everyone does seem very open-minded and understanding. And I think it, again, it's just creative people sometimes can be hard to communicate, but I think within a lot of sense, they're less structured. They're less sort of fit to the, to the cookie cutter, or I don't know what to, what to call it, like the general path of life almost like they have sort of a different perspective. So I think that might lend to it, but I've definitely noticed the same thing. And I think, without music I don't know where I would be and for me it's playing music is a big one but for me it's honestly it's listening to music and discovering new music that's my passion in life and sharing it and sharing it yeah yeah and you met your partner through that sort of world right so I did yeah he was a bass player I hired to play on my second album (laughs) nice yeah that's great so you have you have three releases uh up to this point, I believe yes. the last one was 2015, and, yeah, and you oh are working God, on. I really love that title for your 50, uh, 2015 EP. That, oh, thank you. Where mm-hmm. the ocean meets the sand. Yeah, that's that gets me in right away. But um, yeah, I checked out some of your music, um, and yeah, you have a really unique sound that's um, got a bit of a Canadian feel, but it's also got your other interests, your other roots in it, and uh, you know. Your lyrics, obviously, you write your own lyrics, and uh, that's how you said that helps you. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, that's a great one I was checking out. And um, we'll talk more about music. Of course, everybody, you know, check her out wherever you get your music. Yeah, I know. It's Heather Hutchison. You can find her on Spotify, Apple Music. You have a Bandcamp page, which I love to see, because nice. that's where I go to support a lot of music. It's heatherhutchison.bandcamp.com. Um, so, yeah, go go look it up and, and check out her music for sure. Um so you ended up with this partner and, and eventually you guys traveled 
Yes. <laughs> Maybe qu- tell us about that because it's it, pretty pivotal in your life, I know. Yeah, so we moved to Peru <laughs> of all places, but I'd kind of grown up in Canada surrounded by like the the Latin American community in Canada and it was kind of like music for me for whatever reason these people were just super open and accepting and I think that Canadians I don't know what your guys's experience has been but for me it's kind of they they have one of two responses often either they studiously avoid the topic of blindness to the point where it's uncomfortable and there's just like clearly this elephant in the room and they want to ask about it but they they don't or they try to pretend that they're totally cool with it by cracking blind jokes which is which is cool I like a good blind joke as much as the next person but you know we've heard them all a thousand times people really aren't that original so but people in Latin America for whatever reason I find that they observe a lot more they ask fewer questions but they observe more and they just kind of intuit what I might need or not need and I'm just really again just a person to them so for me I wanted to move to a Latin American country to really have that immersive experience to be different for a different reason you know to be the Canadian girl instead of the blind girl yeah and so you were you there about a year yes yeah so while there you had an emergency medically you guys were stuck um in a really rural place for a while you know you had you were out on the street homeless for a while you know but it was still so worth it for you and then when you came back after a year um sort of what was that like that culture shock was it or or just disappointment yeah, it was this weird reverse culture shock kind of thing. Like you said, there was so much that happened in Peru that, you know, people hear about it and they're like, oh, that sounds awful. But it never felt awful at the time. It was just these things that were happening. But at the time, I just felt like I was so me. I was more me in that year than I think I've ever been. Just kind of this more defined, larger version of myself so then getting back to Canada I didn't want to come back basically we we ran out of money and we were one emergency away from not being able to eat and ending up on the streets again so we came back and the first the very first interaction I had with somebody in Canada because of course <laughs> was this guy in the airport who asked Jordan my partner well what's wrong with her was she born like that and he wouldn't even Jeez. talk to me directly and nobody had treated me like that the entire year that I was in Peru so it was like I'm here five minutes and oh yeah that's why I wanted to leave <laughs> yeah jeez. I'll give you a reminder right in your face mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, just, that that whole part really got me thinking and just really wondering about the difference in cultures. And I feel like, and this is just sort of a what I've kind of gathered from from all of this is that our culture here in Canada is very it's almost individualistic in a way where we're so focused on being independent and so focused on doing everything ourselves. Plus, I think just of course there's all sorts of uh, classes in Canada too, but overall we we generally have a little bit of an I don't think easier is the best word to use, but our lives, you know, the same sort of serious stuff that can go down in some of these other countries isn't quite the same here. Um, so I think we're just not as used to, unfortunately, like working together and coming together as a group to do things. So when when we are different or we don't just sort of blend in, then we are looked at as a lot different. Whereas in a country like that, everyone, 
experiences maybe a bit more of a struggle so people are kind of used to working together more I don't know if that makes any sense but I'm just really fascinated by the difference in, in cultures yeah that's kind of what I've always thought just that emphasis on community that community is more important than somebody's individual discomfort around something they want everybody to feel a part of it and that's what matters more than than having I think in Canada too we almost feel entitled to knowledge so people will come up to us on the street and ask these personal questions about our medical history and stuff and it's almost like they just they feel like they have the right to that information yeah Canadians don't have the best boundaries yeah I wonder if that's (laughs) that's also like a um, sort of a s- uh, sort of a thing where people need to know the answers for everything. They need to know an exact answer for something, and they can't just sort of you know have their own sort of things that they learn about or something. Pe- and people are also you know in our culture and society, patience is a is a tricky thing for a lot of people. So we're so impatient. We just want the answers. And we want to know. Um, whereas I think some of these other cultures might be a little more relaxed and maybe are able to kind of live more in the moment because they're not as distracted by all of this media and, and all the stuff that, w- that uh, we consume every day. Yeah, and material things, you know, storage units. That's such a North American thing. Yeah, you ne- I need more room to store the stuff that I have than my yeah, own yeah. place that I live in. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, nobody, There's. I don't think I saw a single storage unit in Latin America. And you've moved enough, so you came back after that year, and then you were um, on the mainland again, but you that's when you headed to the island, um, and you've lived several places. So I think when you've lived multiple places, um, you see things differently, um, and you just get used to being more adaptable in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, I assume you've traveled other places, and I love to talk about travel because I went to Mexico, but not for a whole year, like immersing yourself. That you know, that's a whole other ballgame. Yeah, even Mexico. I've spent a lot of time in Mexico, just like three weeks here, a month there, kind of thing. So, mm. yeah, even Mexico is a lot like that. I would say just more open and accepting. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I had my thoughts traveling there about what it was like for blind people, um, but I was only there for you know a very short time to really understand stuff like that. But. Yeah, and I think it's hard maybe. I don't know if you were like in a resort kind of thing or or what you were in, but it's really interesting when you go there and and you actually live like we'll get yeah. we'll rent a condo. Yeah, no, it was a it was a it was like a a, a house rented um yeah. for oh, cool. a work a writing workshop. So yeah. we were in it felt like we were cause she, the woman running it was an, was an expat, so she'd been living there. So it it felt a little more immersive than um being at a resort like in Cancun. Um, yeah, yeah, because that's just so. Move. I don't know. It's it's what we want as Canadians and Americans. I guess what we want Mexico to look like, which is like yeah. almost an adaptation of Canada or the U.S. with just like this tiny amount of Mexican culture thrown in, which it's just not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not dead against the idea of a resort ever but no, again, it's, nice. it definitely takes away the culture. Like, why am I going to another country when I could just have pretty much the same experience here and just go to a nice hotel or something so yeah basically um, well no again we're there's so much to talk about and we haven't even gotten to it so um yeah i think maybe we should steer back now to the to the mental health thing well, yeah uh, I, was, I was getting to um sort of the things that came together uh, to lead you to um being admitted into psychiatric facility um but so that was coming back from peru and it was then eventually I wanna, covid I want to go back just a little bit more 
to a couple things that were said in, during your childhood that you, you wrote in the book. And, you know, it definitely sounds like you did have some, and obviously correct me if I get any of this wrong, that your, your parents were, were supportive the best they could be and they, and they didn't, didn't keep you in that bubble and they let you experience a lot of things. But I see in your book it said one day when there's, your, I think one of your parents maybe said this or one day when there's a cure, we'll rent a giant hall and have a huge party with everyone you know. Yes. And that, in saying that to a, for, to a child who is blind, it's kind of like, you know, once you're fixed or something, we're going to celebrate. And it's, that just really was alarming to me to read. And I think just things like that, obviously that's a, but that one of... But they think that that, that that sounds like we're going to sure. celebrate you and it will right, we'll not all even, be happy and throwing a party and it'll be great. Yeah, but it's like, oh, okay, like I'm not good enough now to celebrate, but when I'm sighted, then then there's something to celebrate about me. It's just all these things tie together, and I feel like yes. the, the blindness, obviously, you know, that's just a characteristic along with many things, but that the acceptance of blindness and something that, Carrie, we, you and I talk about quite a bit, it's different for me. I've just, I've had so much support, and I was born blinded. It's not that I never think about it, but I really don't think about my blindness much at all. Um, and then I know, Carrie, you struggle with that a bit more because you used to be able to see a bit more. And then I think, Heather, I used to kind of assume that, oh, if someone's born blind, then they'd be like me probably. Like they wouldn't ever care at all about seeing because that's just the way things have always been. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. So I just think all of these things, you know, the way that someone feels about their blindness from a young age really tie into this as well. And, you know, certain things like, you know, people, friends and family telling you to leave your cane in the car, put your cane away. Yeah. that everyone's staring at you. Or us, yeah. Or us, yeah. Then you feel mm-hmm. like you're bringing them into it. Like, all of these things add up, and it's it's a lot to, to go through growing up, and it's it's definitely, uh, you know, affects um, emotions and how people feel, for sure. Yeah, there are just so many different factors that go into it. So I was kind of hesitant about writing some of that stuff in the book because I mm. really don't want it. No. Well, it's not to blame it. It's not, you know, what? I, like, I don't know how you... How yeah. you approach that? Yeah, in I don't that. either. How do you write that? Yeah, without yeah, somebody it's, it's really tough, and you also don't want people to think, "Oh, well, every blind person feels like that." Because no, it's just one blind person. Well, that's the thing experience. we're really trying to change here: is don't meet one blind person and base that off of uh, yeah exactly. experiences off Please. of all blind people. Stop. Please. Wow, but um, yeah, so sort of everything led up to the, the pandemic. Well, then the the other ones that that came up when you when you were a child were you know, a couple times people said things like, you know, you're useless, you should kill yourself, or if I went blind, I'd kill myself. Like, things like this that are just so outlandish and I can't... We hear that all the time. People say that every Yeah, or like the everywhere. one I've, I've heard more recently is like, you know, I'd rather have cancer than be blind. And it's like, oh, well, geez. cancer can kill you. Being blind, sure, it's hard, but it has its inconveniences, of course, but it's not, it's not deadly. Like, Yeah, why do people say these things? Like... How is that helpful? How is that? I, I think it is. It's out of fear in a lot of cases, yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Where people, and it, I get it. Like, I've been born blind, so I don't know any different. I get losing sight later in life would be a hard adjustment. Not, not, nobody's denying that, but it's just, it's such a negative thing. And um, it's just an area that I find interesting. Yeah, people just don't think before they speak that, hey, you know, maybe that's not something you should say to somebody who is struggling already with maybe some self-worth or, you know, you just don't know what somebody else is going through. So I think we need to be a little bit more sensitive about how we approach things like that. Well, and as far as that goes, suicide and the word itself is similar to that. It's like 
we don't want to be having shame around the word. And so we want to talk about the word. And um, we've lost two um, family members to it. And, you know, those families don't want everybody to be walking on eggshells and not wanting to talk about that person again. So there's a lot of that stigma around it, but it's just the word. You know, it's like with sexual sex ed, sex ed in school. It's like, oh, don't teach them about sex ed because then you'll give them ideas. It's the same thing yeah. as suicide. Yeah, which is really unfortunate because we need to be talking about it. And there is this myth that even just bringing up the word is going to make somebody think, oh, well, you know, maybe that's a good idea, which is just not not accurate. It's actually the opposite. By not talking about it, we're, we're isolating people. And plus, people can say things to you about suicide. Um, like, you know, well, you wouldn't do that to your family. You would hurt them or things like that that are not helpful at all. Yeah, no. it's, it's as if people sort of look at certain things as just like a simple choice. Like, oh, like I'm getting up today. I'm going to go brush my teeth. Like, oh, I'm going to, you know, it's just, it's not, people don't. It's a moral judgment. Put yourself in the situations. Oh, yeah. It's not even like a logical choice at that point. It's just, it's more, it's so emotional. And it's the experience that that person's going through that someone else just, you can't relate to that unless you're going through it quite. So for people to say that it's a selfish act or things like this are just, it's so frustrating to me because it's like. You just don't know what it is. It's not just a simple choice to 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 say it bluntly, kill yourself. Like it's not a. Um. So you started having more mental health struggles than getting back, and uh, leading up to the pandemic, I think a lot of people have struggled, obviously, um, with mental health s- since the pandemic. Uh, but what was that sort of like? It was like the last straw for you, right? Yeah, it really was. So mental health has always been a struggle with for me. Mm-hmm. Since I was about seven, I started to have panic attacks. I didn't know what they were at the time. And I hope things are changing. But that at the time, the pediatrician was kind of like, oh, you know, she's just an anxious kid. She'll grow out of it, which is a really unfortunate attitude because when when we're young is the time that we can change these habits when they're a lot easier to work with. And I think the anxiety eventually led to depression in my early teen years. And then it was on and off from there um, through major depressive episodes. So I'd be fine for months and then it'd be, you know, a few weeks or a few months or even up to a year where I would really be struggling even to get out of bed. So before the pandemic, I had, it would have been November of 2018, I started into one of those major depressive episodes and it didn't get better. Things kept getting worse over the months. I got sicker, I stopped eating, I stopped sleeping, my hair was falling out. And so finally in June of 2019, I went to my doctor, we set up an emergency meeting. They adjusted my meds, they made sure I was getting more outpatient mental health supports and I was able to stay out of the hospital at that point. And then things were improving And then the pandemic hit in March of 2020 and it was really the the last straw because all of a sudden my doctors were harder to reach, the therapists were harder to reach, it was harder to get appointments, they were only phone appointments so they weren't really seeing the physical signs of my decline and things just got worse from there and I, I would have these things throughout my life that I would call kind of survival goals and it would be like I can't kill myself until I go to Mexico one time one last time I can't kill myself until I see this friend one last time things like that and then when 
those things were over, I would try to plan more things so I could keep going a little longer. And then when the pandemic hit, all of those things were gone. I didn't know when they would happen and I couldn't really see the point in continuing without these attainable goals. And yeah, it was it was always a control thing for me too. I'm <laughs> a total control freak. And when the pandemic hit, there was nothing really left for me to control. So I decided the only thing I could control is how and when I was going to die. Right. And that that also brought up a interesting part in the book where you're speaking, I believe, with one of the one of the doctors or somebody when you're in the in the psych ward about that, and they they're kind of trying to tell you like how or just sort of bringing up the point of how is you know suicide the ultimate form of control? Um, like you don't you don't really know what's going to happen, and you're kind of losing control in a way by doing that. And it's just all of these things are it's so deeply ingrained in, in our emotional states and our mental health and. That's why I just think mental health is such an important topic. And of course, circumstance is not ideal, but it's just so great to have you on the show today to talk about this stuff because it's, we're just still in this society, I find, where we, it's not taken seriously. And you talk a lot in the book about comparing it to a medical situation. And, and Carrie and I have both, you know, been in the hospitals quite a bit growing up with kidney failure and all sorts of stuff we've dealt with, but that none of it's been mental health. Um, but I still have that same feeling of, of, a, of a hospital and, and what, what can be done, but that there's, there's no difference in my opinion to, to mental health and, and physical health. They're both so important for, for a happy life. And I just, it's so frustrating that it's still stigmatized in our society and, and all this stuff. Yeah, it is really frustrating. Like I always tell people, you want to know the actual main difference between a psych ward and all the other wards of a hospital. There's no cards. There's no balloons. There's no flowers. There's no get well anything because people just don't know what to say or what to do. And again, it, it becomes like they're judging you for your decisions in life. Uh, <laughs> see the correlation there. But yeah, you're right. It's a different atmosphere, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, what it was like for you to check yourself in that that morning uh, during the pandemic. So, of course, restrictions were different. And, of course, being in hospital, it was it would have been different than if you had been in there on non-COVID times. But uh, you really um, write really candidly about that experience. And it's just a world a lot of us never see. Um, and it re- remains too stigma- stigmatized, in my opinion. It's like words and things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's why I wanted to write the story really candidly and tell people because I think people think psych wards and they think one flew over the cuckoo's nest or girl girl interrupted or whatever and mm-hmm. a lot of people ask me well is it like what it like is it the same as in the movies and yes and no so I really wanted to speak really openly about it and hopefully put to rest some of some of these fears because I think the fears lead to this stigma which leads to not wanting to talk about it and so on and a lot of fear around it from people who just who never see it up close enough yeah yeah the fear of the unknown but you really talk about you go by day by day in your with your time there and you talk about the different wards you were on and what they stood for uh you know so really giving people an idea to see that it's not that different than any other ward you'd be on um of course you were held there for longer than you thought right yes 
definitely. The plan wasn't to be held there. The plan was basically I went in seeking absolution. So I got my affairs in order. I planned everything. And then I was like, okay, well, I'll go to the hospital because it'll make my family and friends feel better when I'm gone. They'll be like, well, she tried. So the plan was I was going to go. They were going to be like, oh, you're fine. Go home. And then I could, you know, continue on with my plans. But I ended up being admitted as an involuntary patient. So it didn't quite work out that way. Mm-hmm. But all the times we think of what we could do, uh, how we can help people going through those things, it's like that's some people sort of have run through all of it in, in Canada with the mental health system. And so you think, well, what good would it do? But you really, I mean, you write about it candidly, as I say, but you had some really um, serious moments where you were really doing work for yourself. Like you said, you didn't go anywhere off this ward for a week or more, but you really felt like you went on quite the journey kind of yeah yeah it's it's exhausting because you are going through so much emotional turmoil and once you get to the point of wanting to help yourself that's actually when things get harder not easier because the first couple days there I was just really going through the motions just waiting for them to let me out and then when I experienced that shift and I did start trying things got hard and things got exhausting well, you, you talked a lot about in the book about the sort of the reactions from the different people in the ward because everyone's, you know, at a different state or might be coming off of a substance or, no, you know, there's so many different things that people are coming in there for. But the thing I noticed about you, which I, I just th- thought was interesting, is how, you know, patient and I don't know, you just, you seemed, you really seemed appreciative of the of the nurses and everything that they did in there. And I just, I love to see that, like, it's obviously it's a tough time, but any times I've been in the hospital too, and obviously for a different reason, but it's all I could have to kind of compare your experience to was me being in hospital. And I just, I'm always fascinated how well it's run. And obviously I wasn't in a a psych ward per se, but it's just that it's like a well-oiled machine almost. The way everything is just works and set up a certain way and they bring your meals and they do this and that. And people might find it weird when I say it in my situation, but part of me like likes being in the hospital and I don't know if that's I don't know it feels weird for me to say that but that's kind of my experience but mainly I just wanted to point out how how respectful you did come across to to all the professionals working there and everything like that yeah they were really incredible and it was during COVID as you said so it was just they were trying to make the best of this really impossible situation and really doing an admirable admirable job of it mm-hmm. so for anyone who has just tuned in we're speaking today with Heather Hutchison author of the book, Holding On by Letting Go, a memoir of her experiences dealing with mental health and being admitted into a psych ward during the pandemic, as well as her her love for music. And uh, you can find her online, heather-hutchison.com. We are going a little bit over time today. It's it's afternoon here, but I I think we could talk a little bit longer. Carrie, what do you, what do you think? I, there's not really a cutoff here, so there's a few more things I think we could, we could touch on. It's just whether the guest can... Yeah, I mean, it's obviously up to Heather yeah, how much she wants to stick around, but um, I just sure. find this a fascinating to, uh, discussion, so I wouldn't so mind one going more break. Longer. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to take another break. No, let's, oh, just, let's cool. just keep going, okay. and then we'll, we'll I was expecting we need probably it. wrap it up in 10, 10 15 minutes, yeah. something like that. No, I, I was going to say, I was going to lead it back to, uh, you know, a few things I learned from your experience, and um, yeah, like, it seemed like they treated you really, you know, well with your blindness, and you had access to your cell phone, uh, so you were able to to do things independently like you really started researching well I love the one of the doctors one day I told you the that. one doctor uh, 
asked if you had a screen reader, access to a screen reader, and you were just commenting in the book how you were surprised that they even knew about that. And that sort of jumped, yeah. jumped out for me too. It's like, yeah, a lot of people wouldn't even think to say that. So No, exactly. I was like, wow, how do you, how do you even know that, let alone think to ask about it? So I was really impressed. But tying it back to some, some of the things you've had happen in your life we've talked about um, so far today, we learned something, or I learned something in there about the five primal fears did you know a lot about that before you'd been a psychology student um so had you known a lot about that before you talked about it with your doctors in the hospital i did know a bit about it it's weird because there's some it depends on the doctor some people some doctors say there's four some people say there's six so and and they tend to like vary a little bit depending on the doctor i think the core ideas are the same you know the the fear of non-existence the fear of abandonment things like that but the wording and exactly how many there are tends to vary a little bit from person to person Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like the color wheel for emotions, uh, <laughs> yeah, taking exactly. a course on inclusion and accessibility. And they were talking about that. Yeah, the shades of different colors for the moods. Um, but no, I, I found it interesting and it sort of ties to, you know, you can tie to certain, like you say, the fear of um, abandonment. You could tie that back to what happened with your your parents in the divorce, right? So there's mm-hmm. always things you could bring that back to. Um, but you, like, what did you... What was the epiphany? Would you call it an epiphany? I think if you I know you'd it. said on certain some interviews you don't really believe in epiphanies, mm-hmm. but then that's what I, I don't want to paint it as like yeah. a magic solution. So I'm trying to see how you see it from when you wrote it in the book. Yeah, that I guess I would call it more of a moment of clarity, and it was a tipping point. I guess you could call. Yes, it. totally. Right. So what was that? Uh, that was around an incident. You were hearing a lot of things up all hours of the night when things were going on in the hospital. What was it like to sort of see other things going on around you while you're trying to work so hard on yourself? Yeah, it was tough because I think you come out of the hospital with, you go in with traumas and you come out with <laughs> other traumas mm-hmm. from things that you see and overhear when you're in there that a lot of people, if they haven't been through that experience, can't really relate to. So the kind of tipping point for me was this one night I was lying awake they were changing my medications so it was really hard to sleep sometimes and this person was brought in by air ambulance which if you've been in a hospital when the air ambulance lands it's mm-hmm. really loud yeah, here at some <laughs> hard hospital. to uh, sleep through that and as soon as they got there they called a code blue so I'm lying in bed and I start thinking about this patient's family and their loved ones and I'm thinking to myself my god they must be having one of the scariest nights of their lives and then I start thinking about my own family and thinking well how can I feel so much empathy for this person's loved ones while I know the decision I want to make is going to devastate my own and then I started thinking about the patient themselves and this weird juxtaposition of okay, they're in here fighting to live. I'm in here fighting to die. One of us does have a choice. And so I can choose to continue biding my time here. They'll have to let me out eventually and then I can continue on with my plan to die. Or I can choose in this moment to live, to start to work on things, to get 
well enough to leave the hospital so I can go out and tell my story and tell people what it's like because sincerely the worst part of that experience was the thought of somebody else having to go through it so if I can make somebody feel a little less alone with what they were going through or educate somebody so that they never have to go through that in the first place then then putting in all that effort would be worth it and writing this book like you did when you got got out uh, you were Mm -hmm. released um, did it, you know, all since the pandemic. And sometimes it's better to get your thoughts out fresh while they, they've been happening, which... Yeah, stuff can fade, I find, pretty quickly. Um, yeah. Like, the, the, the situations I've been in the hospital, I just... I do I do think I have also noticed, and again, I'm not trying to compare, I just, I just think it's interesting to kind of bring it up, is that I do notice there is certain clarity that I've experienced. And a couple of the times I was in hospital was, you know, was nearly near-death situations. Um, and... When, I just had this, I did have this clarity and I can kind of imagine like being awake, like not being able to sleep in a night. And I think it just, it sort of takes you out of your routines at home or whatever you're doing at home. So it puts you in a different state almost. And you can sort of have these, I mean, my situation obviously different, but like when I would get out of the hospital, I had such a new outlook on life. Like it just, it was almost like I was, things were new or something. And I don't know. I just think that there is a certain uh, feeling that you can get in, in a hospital and that can sort of result in some forms of uh, clarity or change your thinking patterns a little bit. Yeah, I totally agree. There's just that fragility that you see day in and day out in the hospital that I think can give us a different perspective when we get out. Yeah. You have that feeling when you get out of so it's sort of freedom feeling, but also yeah, like well, a... Yeah, I made it through. <laughs> yeah, it's like I survived this and, and it almost feels kind of, for me anyway obviously I would never speak for anyone else but like looking back at I have some fond memories from it and I don't know if you can look back on that and have if you what your memories are like now I mean it's just been it's been uh over a year ago now I suppose so yeah 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 and to bring it back to blindness again as we're ending going to be ending the show here soon it's just right at that same point when you were being um released you were waiting to hear back from some genetic tests you were you'd had for your blindness to see if it was one of the forms that could be treated right so yes. there was a lot going on I don't know how you yeah, balanced yeah that. and I didn't know if that was going to come in because of the pandemic and you know I think going yeah. back to childhood that that had been so talked up during my childhood that it was something that I thought was really really important and I didn't know if it was going to happen mm-hmm. so yeah I mean I don't know how you feel these days about that but that's the question like talking the guide dog or no guide dog it's do you would you want treatment if you could do you want to know if there's something that could be done or don't you and I, I don't know sort of where you fall on that where you fell on that then or now if it's changed at all if your perspective on that that is such a tough question and I think yeah. it's so well, that's what I got from your book that you yeah know, it's just so individualistic right because yeah. some people so I, I it's kind of hard even to to speak to it because I want to make sure that people know that it's just my opinion everybody else might feel completely different I think there's so many people that like my friends my family when they heard about it they were like well you're crazy like of course you would get it done no matter the cost or anything and I'm like well of course you would get it done but it's it's so much more complicated than that there are risks there are disadvantages for sure there'd be so much that that we would have to relearn um and do we have to change or does the world have to change I think that's a big question I think for me I would 
I would likely do it just because, well, depending on the circumstances and the cost and the risks and things, but all that aside, I think I would likely do it just for the convenience factor to be able to go out and not have people stop me all the time to ask me personal questions and things like that. Like for me, I think a lot of sighted people think about it as, oh, well, you're missing the sunset or your loved one's faces. For me, it's not about that because I've never had that. And I think sometimes it's easier for sighted people to think about it in that sort of abstract way because then they're thinking about it in terms that they can't change instead of looking at it as well, there's a societal shift here that we have to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people, it's it's easier to kind of think, oh, someone else can just quote unquote fix, terrible way to put it, themselves by, by getting their sight back and we don't have to do anything. We can just, you know, watch that happen and then they can see again. But again, yeah. it comes down to disability, the social or the medical model, which for us living it, it gets, it gets jumbled up, right? This it is does. medical to get to get treatment, and that's your right if you want that. And science is so amazing, right? And it's also the social model that you would you would do it, like you say, f- to get rid of the inconvenience that society and is, in, as a whole is has putting the barriers there. Um, so read every, everybody pick up Heather's book, and, and you'll really get a better idea of how different we all are. And that's what we talk about on Outlook here, and 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 what her experience was. That but that there's no this book doesn't like give you all the answers on any of it. No, but it, it covers like so many interesting, like just me mentioning earlier, I'll quickly touch on that, that I'm, I've been like super interested in psychology and it's one of those things I went to school for music, um, audio engineering and stuff, but like it's something I still would consider doing in the future, or at least taking some more courses on psychology because just I love how you touch on all these things, the cognitive behavioral therapy, the family systems theory, the theory of radical acceptance, all these things that I just didn't really know too much about. Um, I don't think you mentioned this one in your book, but it's one that's been on my mind lately is this catastrophic thinking where the littlest thoughts are kind of looked at as, you know, they could be the worst things could happen from from things and stuff like that. And just all of these concepts I find really great. So I just, I love how you incorporated those into the book, but still kept it casual and, and a memoir and, and just your your feelings and thoughts and what you were going through. Yeah, it's also fascinating to me, all those different theories and stuff, because I'm a bit of a psych nerd too, so... Hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, as we're going to wrap up, uh, again, read her book. We didn't want to give it all away in this interview. We could have touched on all these Yeah, maybe things. we already touched on too much. I don't know. <laughs> well, but I, I think people are still going to want to read it, I hope, because it is a great read, Holding On by Letting Go by Heather Hutchison. You can find it on ebook, audiobook, uh, paperback, and heather-hutchison.com. So you said you, I think you mentioned maybe you don't want to talk much about it on the show, but you're working on new music now again? Um. I am, yeah. We're just finishing up the lead vocals for the last song, so it's really exciting because <laughs> it's been, like you said, 2015 was the last one, and I look at that and I, I hear you say that, and I'm like, oh my God, that was so long. Like, 2015, how does that happen? I don't know where the time went, but I don't know. You yeah, got, I'm you really to, excited you to have to Peru music going and you, Yeah, there's things that happen. Well, I think Peru was before that, maybe. Oh, yes, was it? it was. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I got that timeline. Yeah, it up. was right before. Right before, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, what has music been for you now? Because, like you say, when you're going through depression, music's not always what you can run to. Um, but then again, you find it again. And uh, so it was, what's that been like since then? Yeah, so definitely before I went into the hospital, music was not, it was becoming 
not a part of my life anymore. I had stopped playing music actually a couple months before COVID because I was just struggling so much that it wasn't enjoyable. I would be up on stage just thinking to myself like, this is torture, I don't wanna do this. And then I kind of realized, well, why am I doing this? It's not fair to me and it's not fair to the people coming to see the show. So I wasn't playing live even before the pandemic. And then mm. after writing the book, cause I got really busy with that after getting out of the hospital. Cause like you said, Brian, um, trying to write it all down while it was still fresh. So that was a huge undertaking. It was way more work than I imagined it could be. Yeah. Um, nice. But yeah, now I've finally kind of found my way back to music, which is really exciting. And I've kind of been writing, it's almost like a soundtrack for a book. So it's it's really oh, interesting. Sweet. So it touches on a lot of the same topics that are in my book, just in a musical format. Huh. Very cool. Yeah, I'll uh, definitely uh, keep keep a lookout for the new the new music. Maybe uh, coming soon. And yeah, I'm so glad you reached out to us to come on Outlook and and sort of introduce us to your book, which hopefully we would have come upon eventually. But um, I'm all about supporting other books being written about the, your um, our lives because yeah, and this, we'll learn better. The, the tying in too with the with disability and blindness and mental health too. I think those two things tying together. Mm-hmm. Um, it is interesting to talk about here because it's not something we've covered on this well, show. Well, again, it's not clear, right? People can say, "Well, when you're blind, you're going to be you're going to have mental illness because it must be miserable to be blind, right?" But it's not. Yeah. It, you know, we all have mental struggles, mental health struggles, with no matter what we're going through, divorce or disability or. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of blind people that don't deal with mental health, but it's like any group of anyone. I think there's segments where certain people might assume, oh, you're blind, it must be miserable, suicide must be high in your community or something, but it's, you know, that's just, it's not no, the way it works. No, there are so but. many variables. Exactly. And mm-hmm. it's, so what, I just want to finish too with a little bit about, so you learned all of, about all of these theories and stuff that you might have remembered a little bit from psychology, but you learned all this stuff in the hospital. It's all reinforced. So how has it been now? You've been back for, been home now out of the hospital for over a year. Overall, how are you finding it compared to, let's say, obviously better than I think a few, a couple of years yeah. ago maybe, but like, how are you keeping up with all of this stuff? How do you kind of, what do you do to sort of keep your mind in a certain spot and not sort of veer into all of this, this thinking that can cause so much so much difficulty or maybe you have like yeah whatever you want to yeah whatever you kind of want to finish off on sort of how you manage things going forward here so I remember a conversation with one of the nurses in the hospital who said that the real work starts when you go home and that's so true because you don't have the constant reminders to form healthier habits and healthier ways of thinking so for me it's it's not something that I can ever forget about and let slide. It's something that I have to be constantly conscious of and constantly work on every day. And I think that's a big struggle that people have. You know, they try to apply the CBT or the, you know, uh, mindfulness or meditation, whatever it is. And they start and they're going full bore and then it doesn't work right away. And they're like, well, I suck at this. I'm, it doesn't work for me. And they just give up. It's a daily thing that you have to practice every day. And some days I'm still better at it than others. And it's just giving yourself that little bit of grace to realize that some days are going to be better than others. It's not like there's going to be rainbows and sunshine every day going forward. And 
So giving yourself that permission, working on it every single day and making sure that you find your why and your purpose for, okay, why am I here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Yeah, that's another big thing that, that was mentioned in the, in the thing that in the book about depression is often caused from not feeling useful or having, mm-hmm. as, as you said, a purpose. And I do think that ties into it for sure is we all want to feel like we're, we're contributing something or doing something. And if we don't feel that, then we just kind of maybe sometimes think, what's the point? So I think it is really important for people to find that. And I also sometimes wonder, like, I'm lucky that I am creative in, in your case too. And Carrie is a writer here we're creative people. So we kind of have that and not everyone has that. So I sometimes wonder like, cause for me, music has really helped me and I just don't know how I would be, how I would deal without it. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's just finding that outlet, whatever it is. And sometimes it's not immediately off obvious and we get frustrated, but it, it will present itself if we kind of keep looking for it, I think. Mm-hmm. And then it's the, it's the whole concept too about that you cut, touch on in the book is this mental health where it's it's not like a f- physical thing where you get your leg f- your your legs broken and then it heals and you're good. Mental health yeah. is an ongoing life thing, and if it's something that you experience, it's not ever going to totally go away. You're you're just learning ways to manage it and and cope with it and and uh, prevent yourself from getting into those you know deep places again. So it's an it's an ongoing thing for sure. I imagine and absolutely. Um, Right, but everybody go check out her memoir if you want to learn more about her story. Um, a lot of interesting twists and turns in that. And yeah, thanks so much for coming on Outlook, Heather. Um, Thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, as I was saying before, your music is beautiful, and I love Thank all the <clears throat> I love all the violins or is it um, cello? Uh, you know, all the strings. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I love strings. There's there's going to be a lot of strings in the new music too, oh, so I'm nice. really excited about that. I don't play my violin as well as I'd like, so I'm always excited to hear more music with, more modern music with violin that's more contemporary stuff, not all classical always, but... Yeah, it's um, it's lovely, the violin. And then maybe you'll be doing some, uh, some shows one of these days once things are safe and... Yeah, yeah, that's the hope for sure. Yeah, and hopefully we're seeing this pandemic wind down a little because it would be, we'd all three here would appreciate that, I think, along yeah. with our <laughs> listeners today, I'm sure. Um, but here, as far as this being Outlook on Radio Western today, um, you, you may be a student listening, and of course, students in, in university, the stress, all these things, we're talking mental health today, and whether disability sort of intersects with that or anything else, um, it just makes our lives interesting in the end, I suppose. But thank you again, Heather, for coming on, and we thank look you. forward to following you more, and uh, check out her music and her book. Yeah, and if there's any any final words you want to say, anything we didn't cover or anything you want out on the air before we... Well, where can people follow you? If they, if yeah. they, other than your website, you're on social media, right? Yeah, I'm on all social media, Facebook, Instagram. If you go to my website, it's all there, as well as links to my music, the book, Spotify, uh, Audible, anywhere you find music and books, pretty much. Awesome. Holding On by Letting Go is the name of the book. Heather Hutchison is our guest today on Outlook. And uh, yeah. Yeah, this will be up as a, as a podcast coming up later if you missed any of it. Just go to mixcloud.com slash Outlook. Or sorry, getting that wrong today. That's your music page. Um, that's my music show. I'm getting, I'm getting things mixed up here. Brian, yeah. Search for Outlook on Radio Western on all podcast services. We'll have this episode up as soon as possible. And uh, yeah, thanks so much, Heather. Thank you. Send us an email, outlook on radio western at gmail.com. 
Find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.